of course, we all know we're not supposed to look so much at our phones and we all know that our lifestyle is bad for us. But much like with dieting or eating, it's about seeking enjoyment from the act rather than thinking about it as a restriction, you know, that the Mm -hmm. more attention you pay to whether it's food or whether it's what you're doing, the more you can kind of enjoy it rather than being on a constant quest to optimize your life. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Yay, summer solstice. Yeah, summer solstice is Tuesday. June 21st. It's going to be precisely at 5.14 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. You know, there's a legend that if you sleep under an elder bush on Midsummer's Eve, which is the night before the solstice, you'll be able to see the garden fairies. Mm, Are you going to do that? Well, I'm thinking about it. Or maybe I'll just sit out in the yard and watch the fireflies. This time of year is their mating season. And they gather in the trees, and they make this amazing light show like you wouldn't believe that it it looks like garden fairies. Why don't you come join me? (laughs) Maybe I will. Yeah, we'll sit out and watch the the fireflies. I remember the summers that I spent at camp in Alabama, in particular, in North Georgia also. Gosh, those fireflies at night in the summer. Yeah. So we're starting a new theme for summer in the Almanac, which is our online community. We have a different theme every season. And, well, we have a a word to sort of encompass a theme, and this season it's embrace. So I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about embracing all of the goodness of summer because, as we all know, summer can just fly by sometimes. And for those of you who are joining us or have been with us, get ready because we're going to have a really fun time embracing summer. We have lots of fun things in store. Yeah. And so let's tell them about our new voicemail system. Right. So our voicemail system, we just set it up. You'll call in, leave a voicemail, and we want to hear from all of you listeners. You can call in and ask a question. You can tell us how your slow living journey is going. You can tell us what the good dirt means to you. We'd love to hear from you. And we're doing a fun thing. After the month of June, all the way up to our 100th episode, which is in just a few weeks, we will be picking one person who left us a voicemail to come back with us and we'll have a slow living consult. So we'll reach out to you if you're the winner. So why don't you tell us more about the slow living consult? What is that? Yeah. So slow living consult is a conversation with us. It's really what it sounds like. Yeah. It's a conversation with us about slow living. So what is slow living? How are you slow living? How are you not slow living? (laughs) Um, What areas of your life Does it feel inaccessible to you? What sort of things have you been struggling with and slowing down? What is baffling to you? What is exciting to you and inspiring to you? And um, it's just, it's super fun. It's a conversation with us about slow living. So if you call in and leave a voicemail at 443-459-1950, you have the opportunity to win a slow living consult with us. Yeah, and you might be one of these people out there that listens to these conversations and you think that's not for me my life is too hectic I can't do that that's inaccessible to me um you might be the very person that would benefit from this and hint as so many of our recent guests have pointed out um slow living isn't about speed really or how busy you are it's more about um 
the quality of your daily life and the decisions you're making and things that feel nurturing to you or not. So these are all things worth talking about, and we'd love to talk to you personally. So call in and leave us a voicemail, and maybe you'll get picked for this Slow Living Consult giveaway. The number can also be found in the show notes of this podcast, and it is (laughs) 443-459-1950. Yeah, and in the meantime, we hope you are embracing early summer, eating some delicious summer bounty, and enjoying the long evenings, and enjoying the sunshine, and getting your hands in the dirt, and going to the farmer's market, and all this. Yeah, so this is all reminding me of our guest that we have today. Yes, so today our guest is Marty Buckley. She's an American Alabama-born writer and a cook who's found her way to living a life she loves in San Sebastian, Spain. Her first book, Basque Country, A Culinary Journey Through a Food Lover's Paradise, came out in September 2018. She's currently working on her second book, as you'll hear in the interview. It's all about pinchos. If you don't know what pinchos are, if you've never heard of Basque Country or San Sebastian, you are certainly in for a treat. And as you'll hear in this episode, actually as a family, we had the opportunity to visit this amazing part of the world. Gosh, it's been 12, 13 years now. It was 2009. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back. Time to go back, Mom. Yeah. So Basque Country is a region in southern France and northern Spain, and they'll have, as you'll hear her explain in the episode, a super specific culture and language that has this really sort of mysterious history to it. And of course, this also means that they have a very specific way of eating and sourcing their food, and it's all inextricably tied to slow living, and it's just so beautiful. Yeah, and you know, we've talked to several people who've ended up living this slow European lifestyle, and it's really fun to talk about that and to see what things we can learn from people that live in other countries and apply them here or wherever we live that can help all of us reach our slow living goals or the life that we want to lead. Yeah, I think part of the life that I want to lead is to find one of these cooking clubs that she talks about. Oh yeah, the dining societies. (laughs) Yes, I want to find a dining society. It sounds like the most fun thing and I won't ruin it. I'll let her tell it to you in the interview. Yeah. So as always, we hope you enjoy. We think that this episode is best enjoyed on a sunny patio. Oh, overlooking a beautiful view, if you can, with some wine or cider. And uh, yeah, maybe one of these pinchos. What's that? Listen up and you'll find out. (laughs) Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. We'll be back next Friday. And here's Marty Buckley. I'm Marty Buckley. I am from Alabama, but I live in San Sebastian, Spain, where I have been for the last over a decade, about 11 years now. I'm an author and I'm a cook and a journalist. And I published a book, Basque Country. It's a cookbook, but it's also sort of like an anthropological study of the Basque people, which is the people group that inhabit the north of Spain where I live. And I'm currently working on my second book, which is another cookbook about pinchos, which are like the small bites that Basque people are so famous for. So how did you end up in San Sebastian? So you're from Alabama. How'd you end up in San Sebastian? And how did you end up cooking and writing about cooking? I don't know. I feel like a lot of what has happened to me has been luck or fate or whatever you want to call it. I did the thing where you study Spanish and you want to go study abroad and get the language down better. And so in my mind, I wanted to be in Europe studying Spanish. I wanted to be in Madrid, 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 Madrid. That's all I wanted. Mm -hmm. But the program that I signed up for decided to put me in Pamplona, which is a much smaller little city. It's about an hour from San Sebastian where I am right now. And I had no idea like of what it was. And so I landed there my first trip out of the United States in the tiny airport. It's like one room. And I was like, where am I? And that kind of kicked off this journey of learning about Europe, learning about Spain and learning about this people group in the north of Spain that's like very different. And at that moment, I just fell in love, you know. So even after I finished my 
six months abroad and went back home, I was just kind of obsessed with the best country in Spain. But of course, you have to then like live your life. And so mm-hmm. I finished my college degree in English and I started working in the magazine industry and then took a year off to give birth to my daughter. And when it was time to kind of reincorporate myself in the workforce or when I got pretty antsy from being at home for like a year, I decided that I wanted to try my hand at cooking professionally or I just wanted to see what it was like. So I went one night to the best restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from, and I did, I guess you could say, a stage. And um, it was like the worst experience of my life. <laughs> it was, it was horrible. <laughs> I was the only girl. I, you know, I thought I was like an avid cook, but of course, when you go to a professional kitchen, you realize you have no idea what you're doing. It was just really scary, and I probably never would have gone back except for like the chef de cuisine followed me out that night, and he's like, "Thank you so much for coming." I was like, "Yeah, whatever," and he was like, "Come back anytime," and I was like, ah, "Whatever." <laughs> and, then, and then he was like, "Like tomorrow." And I was like, oh, okay, because, you know, I was so nervous and flustered. Yeah. So then the whole way home, I was like, why did you say you'd go back? Why did you say you'd go back? But, you know, I had given my word. And so I went back the next day and I pretty much went back every day for like the next two years. <laughs> wow, that's such a good story. Yeah. <laughs> what you described is the stage. Tell us about that. What was that where you gave a demonstration or something? No, that's like the French, the old school French term that people use in the industry like for like internship. Yeah, apprenticeship. Oh, I see. And it can be anywhere from one night to, you know, several months, but it's basically unpaid um, where you are kind of learning and in exchange, they're getting like your labor. So yeah, I ended up working at that restaurant Bottega under the chef Frank Stitt, who is like the godfather mm. of cuisine and learned everything that I know about cooking, you know, and, and it was a life-changing moment for me. But of course, this whole time in the back of my head, I'm thinking about Spain, I'm being obsessed with Spain, listening to Spanish music, you know, drinking Spanish wine all the time. And I'm also like in parallel working my freelance journalism career. And so I'm writing all the time. So this other really huge coincidence happened to me where every day before I went into work in the kitchen, I would stop at a coffee shop and write for like an hour or so. And this girl from high school came in, I hadn't seen her in like six years. And she was like, I was like, oh, hey, Lauren, how are you? She goes, she was like, horrible. I'm horrible. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and and she told me, she was like, I just got back from Spain yesterday. I've been there living for a year. I'm, you know, I loved it. And I, I was like, tell me everything. How did you do that? And so through that random meeting, I found out about this program that would enable me and my family to go to Spain for what I thought would be a year. And so we ended up doing it and never coming back. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I want to cry. I want to move to France so bad. (laughs) This is it, mom. Okay. Thanks, Martin. (laughs) Bye, everyone. This is is Emma's aha moment. Yeah, I'm having an aha (laughs) First of all, I want to say, I've spent some time in Birmingham, too. I lived there for a few summers. And Bottega, amazing restaurant. What's his other one? He has a few. Highlands. Highlands and Chez Fun Fun. Yeah. Yeah, Chez Fun Fun. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. I want to hear more about your first experience that night, like how you thought it was a disaster and, you know, all the all the things your brain was telling you that this isn't going well. And then it turned out to be like just absolutely pivotal for you. So talk about that first night. Yeah, that first night in the kitchen. I mean, it was like everything, you know, I had to borrow shoes because I didn't have any shoes to wear. I had to borrow a knife from a friend. So, and I never used like, you know, that kind of like high grade cooking restaurant knife. I had to borrow some chef's whites. You know, it just felt like I was a total imposter in every way. <laughs> yeah. And, and you get there and they're like, chop an onion. And actually I don't think they even trusted me in the first, at the beginning of the night to chop an onion. You know, it was like pick parsley leaves, like wipe these plates clean. Um, and just watching, you know, the kitchen full of these guys working hard, putting out a ton of covers. And you just like not wanting to be in the way. And, yeah. you know, back, I think the, the whole culinary world is changing in over the past decade and it's becoming more professional and more gender balanced. But this was still like 15 years ago and it was still very much like a man's thing and people who, you know, had never done anything but cook. And so they were like in this world that I wasn't very much not a part of. And another funny thing, like I don't think I've ever talked about this to people in public, but <laughs> I actually didn't really used to eat seafood. <laughs> and, and that night, as a reward for my hard work, they pulled me over and served me a huge 
huge bowl of boulevards. And wow. like for someone who doesn't Uh-oh. like seafood, it's pretty much the worst dish you can ever imagine. It's like <laughs> mussels, fish, like all the things <laughs> in a bowl with a bunch of liquid. And I was like, mm, you know. <laughs> But of course, you can't be like, I'm sorry, I don't really like seafood. So, yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of forced down as, as much of it as I could. That's so funny. That's great. And of course, now and now you live in San Sebastian, which is like, oh my God, the best seafood and yeah. all of I've, that. I've grown, to, I've grown to like it, of course. Like you get here, everything is totally different. The quality and the freshness. I feel like calamari and octopus are like kind of gateway seafood. And so like I've gotten yeah. seafood. So yeah, I'm a reformed seafood hater. <laughs> well, okay. I'm like you in that coffee shop talking to Lauren. So what was it? that? Like, what was the program that you thought you were doing? Like let's move you to Spain. And what was that like? And then I also want to hear more about Basque Country. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. So when I ran into Lauren, she told me about the Auxiliares program, which is a government funded program that's actually like so great, I think, for this country. But it brings English speaking people in to do about 10 to 12 hours of English teaching a week. And they place people in all of the public institutions. So it can be anywhere from like a grade school to like an official language school to Um, higher education and you just go to the class once a week and you're like they're native they get to hear you speak native English and so the real value in it I mean the money is okay the real value in it is the visa that you get to be here right so as an American it's really difficult to get to Europe because of visa issues and that's the program I did and I did it for a while until I was able to transition to another actual quote unquote, real job. (laughs) Cool. So is that similar to what you did in France? Yeah, I actually did that. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard they have like kind of the same thing in France or? Yeah, and I could have stayed for two years. But yeah, I was just, I guess I was younger. I was still pretty fresh out of college and I was just kind of like bouncing around. But maybe I can go back and do it again. It was super fun. So when you were teaching, where was that initially? San San Sebastian because I- Okay, so they placed you there. At that point, I was obsessed with cooking. I was obsessed with Basque Country, so I knew like this was the place to be because San Sebastian has an outsized valley culinary reputation for the size of city that is. It's like 180,000 people, and it vies always with Tokyo for the most Michelin stars per person. Wow. Um, it's got not only Michelin stars, but also this phenomenon of eating known as pinchos. It's just got all of these culinary riches, and I just knew that it was like the center of the food universe and that I wanted to be there. So I wrote a sneaky email and was like, please put me in San Sebastian. Yeah. And tell us about Basque Country and what that means. Okay, well, Basque Country is a region in the northeast of Spain and the southwest of France. It's a people group that is one of the oldest in Europe, and nobody knows exactly who they came from. The language is not similar to any other language in the world. Nobody is still, to this day, nobody is sure where the language has come from. And it just dates back thousands and thousands of years. And so now even to this day in 2022, they are still like a super outspoken, super culturally cohesive and just a super different culture. They have, you know, different genetics. It's like all still very intact. Mm -hmm. And so their cultural, you know, it's defined by a lot of different things that makes them really special. And they're spread out basically over like four Spanish provinces and three French provinces. And yeah, there's a lot of political kind of controversy about what is best country, but at its most simple, that is probably the best answer. <laughs> That's a great explanation. Yeah. What are some of the distinguishing characteristics of the culture? You've you described the food a little bit and some of the, I guess, personality characteristics, but anything else you can say about that? What distinguishes it from France or Spain? Mm-hmm. The, typically think about so we can start with the fact that it rains like 220 days here a year (laughs) wow and so all these images that you have of like sunny spain that's not here here is a land of like dark green lush mountains and beautiful but cold and dark blue crashing ocean like it's really far from the mediterranean that you can imagine when you think of spain and so then you have like the people group, you know, apart from their physical appearance and their genetics, 
they themselves in part in function of where they are in their history are kind of like very closed off. So like, if you imagine Spain as like going out and doing like flamingo with people in the bars and, you know, this lively part here, it's like a lot more contained, a lot more quote unquote Northern kind of cold attitude. But then they say, once you break through that, you're friends for life. So that's kind of like their reputation among the Spanish people mm. as well. And yeah, and then the cuisine in and of itself, Spain is such an interesting country because it's not very cohesive at all. There's tons of minority languages. Each region was sort of like its own kingdom until, you know, a few hundred years ago. And they still cling really tightly to these small cultures across the peninsula. And so Basque country is definitely part of one of the most outspoken, one of the most different and one of the most kind of mysterious as well, like many subcultures of Spain of, or of Europe. So for me, like I've specialized obviously in the food here. And that's kind of like a whole nother thing of what, what makes Basque food different from Spanish food. I mean, here in the north of, of Spain, it surprises people a lot because they don't do anything <laughs> to the food. They don't do anything to the food. They don't add anything when they're cooking except for salt. Oh and garlic, and maybe like on a crazy day, some parsley. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you crack a little black pepper on some food here, they're like, ooh, spicy. <laughs> oh, wow. I guess yeah. that really speaks to the flavor of the ingredients. Yeah. And, and the freshness and yeah. 100%. Yeah. That's 100%. If you look, you know, at cultures that add a lot of spices, it's often places that are hot where the food would go bad. And, you know, and, but mm-hmm. here they're right next to the ocean right next to the mountains, every day pulling out amazing fresh fish in this beautiful land that's still pretty pristine, not at all Mm -hmm. like sprawl, urban sprawl or anything. So yeah, everything just tastes amazing. And the produce is still in this day, you know, amazing. So yeah, it's definitely to do with that. What about that pimento? Isn't there a Basque pimento? Pimon de Spilet. Yeah, that's on, on the French side. That's made in this beautiful little village called Espelet. And if you go there, now it's more for show, but previously they would grow these peppers, red peppers, then they would string them up and they would tie them to the outside of their huge farmhouses to dry in the sun. And once they dry them, they blend them up into a powder and that's pimon de split. It's not super spicy. No, it's not super spicy. It's like a milder cayenne pepper maybe. Yeah. But it's also got a delicious kind of smoky sun-dried flavor. But it's definitely more, you know, used on the French side of the border. There, you know, there's like um, some different influences if you look at French Basques versus Spanish Basques. Oh, that's so fascinating. So this sounds at least one of the slow food capitals of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think it definitely is. I mean, one of the things that I first kind of realized and first just was in in awe of is like how much people here are still rooted in the temporality and the seasonality of the food that they eat. Like when I was growing up, you know, like I grew up with my mom, you know, she's of the generation, you know, kind of like still like housewives, canned goods, you know, ready-made meals. And I never, even growing up in Alabama where there's great summer produce, I never really like processed that like this is only for summer, this is only for fall, this is only for winter. But Mm -hmm. here, people not only know that their whole lives and never lost that, they also kind of love it. And they love like eating mushrooms every day for two months and never eating them again for like 10 more months. Mm -hmm. And for them, it's like a cause of celebration. It's like, oh, you know, it's the first, it's time for the cider. Oh, it's the first gindia, the first peppers, they're like, you know, ready to eat now. You know, they They really celebrate that and they have it like in their head at all times and have not forgotten it. And that's really cool to see that unbroken. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Like, as you say, they never, they never lost it. It's been a continuation all the way through. And, you know, we talk about slow living through the seasons and seasonal eating is such a big part of that. And something that we're having to re-evaluate or re-experience. Relearn. 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 That's the word. Something we're having to relearn because when I grew up, I tell this story a lot. I feel like I kind of experienced that transition when I was younger. It was more about eating out of gardens and that sort of thing. And then as I came up through the 70s and all these convenience foods started popping up and people started being 
really enamored with saving time and and just the ease of it. And people kind of fell in love with stuff and fell in love with things like box cakes. Right. And one example I love to give is we, we were just all went berserk over Tang because... <laughs> <laughs> you could have orange juice instantly and <laughs> and the, the astronauts drink it so therefore it must be like really good <laughs> so anyway so I sort of experienced that and then you know raising my kids in the 90s convenience was king as I like to say and now we uh, we grow a lot of food we get farm fresh food from the CSA and it's just now that all my children are growing it out of the house <laughs> my husband and I have made a 180 on what we eat mm. hopefully it's rubbing off and hopefully through what we do with Lady Farmer, you know, we're sort of talking about it more and getting people more aware of this issue. That's why we love talking to people in Europe that are still living this lifestyle. And yeah. yeah. And so would you say your family has adapted and, and you guys live that way too? Because you're yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely my daughter, we came here when my daughter was two and a half and she is really considers herself kind of just equally Basque as American. Yeah, she's used to it. She has never known anything different. And that's like kind of the really interesting part because Yes, in America, I agree. We're like relearning this and we're kind of re-adapting to this lifestyle. But there's something so, like I envy them so much of never even reflecting on it and just having it like internalized. And, you know, they don't make a big deal about it, but it, for them, it's just how things should be. And yeah. It's like, it, they're not like Instagramming it. Like it's, yeah, it's yeah. happening and it's just life. And and, and I love that. And they're also like a lot more willing here to spend money on good food. Food for the best people is like the most important thing ever. They're talking about it all day long. When they go to have lunch, they're talking about what is for dinner. They're asking, yeah. you know, like, which fishmonger do you go to? Oh, I don't, you know, he's not the best. The best one's over here, you know? And it's like all these kind of competition conversations around food. And I think that's part of what has kept the culinary culture here like so strong from it's it's like everybody. It's not one demographic. It's like kids all the way to grandparents. Oh, that's so wonderful. We've been through something over here where the processed convenience food became the most affordable at a certain point. And this was definitely an evolution from when people just had their gardens in their backyard and a lot of the food they didn't pay anything for. But we've been through this time when, you know, people stopped having gardens. So they bought these convenience, quick foods and everything. So now that people are trying to eat fresher food, better produce, more organic, it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. So over there, if it's so fresh and so close to the source that they've never gone through this thing where it got more expensive to eat real food or? Basically, I mean, I, I don't want to like sugarcoat things because there's definitely like supermarkets here and, you know, there's like in food industry as well that exists. Yeah. But definitely the cost of eating good here is a lot lower. I mean, it's a yeah. lot lower. The cost of food, also the earning power of people is lower. So it all kinds of matches up. But I get like a reverse culture shock every time I go back to the States at how expensive things are and, you know, how expensive things are to eat good. Here, it truly is like cheaper to get the item that is from closer. Cheaper yeah. to get the item that's just a potato and not a potato powder or potato casserole already made. It's still kind of intuitive here. And it's true that kind of that whole good food becoming a status symbol or um, only for a certain demographic that yeah. had relearned it. That's not, it's not happening here. Food can be a status symbol as in like, I went to the most expensive market in town and got like a wild turbo and I'm going to serve it for dinner. Like in that way, you know, mm -hmm. people appreciate it and they like to kind of show that off a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a different vibe than than what's happening, I think, in the States. What's a turbo? Is that a fish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rodavallo in Spanish. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So what is a pincho? What is a pincho? Well, <laughs> it, that is uh, probably one of the most complicated four-word questions you could ever ask. <laughs> <laughs> However, <laughs> to try to like talk about it in a more simple way, a pincho is, if you know a tapa, the words are often used like interchangeably. There are like some differences. So it's a small bite of food or, you know, some a bite that is like two or three mouthfuls of food. The way that it's different than a tapa is that it's usually like a little bit more elaborate. Like it can be kind of like a really tiny dish or it can also be the word pincho comes from the Spanish word to pinchar, which means to like pierce with something. 
And so the original pinchos were like maybe olives, peppers, and anchovies stuck on a toothpick or a piece of bread with a piece of cheese on top stuck with a toothpick. And those kind of started to show up around the early 20th century. But they quickly, as Spain got better off economically, people, you know, started to go out and eat. They really kind of evolved into works of art. And so by the end of the 20th century, you're seeing like haute cuisine pinchos of like with like foam and like, you know, smoke coming out of them. Um, but wow. basically, let's just say it's a small bite of food that you eat in the Basque country. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's a lot of like anchovies, right? Like canned fish type things. Yeah. Well, the, the, so I'm like deep in the thick of all this, as I mentioned, I'm writing the pincho book. Right. I'm about like a, a week out from turning it in. So yeah, there's cured, like cured fish, like tuna and cured anchovies are definitely a backbone of like the traditional pincho, you know, cured pickles, cured onions, like all those things get stuck on a little toothpick and made into these banderias, which is like the most simple kind of pincho. But there's also, if you go to the old town of San Sebastian, you walk into a pincho bar. I mean, it's just like, for those of you who have never been, if you've been, you know, if you know, you know. But for those of you who have never been, just imagine like walking into a bar, but the bar top is just stacked with beautiful, amazing looking food. Well, this is pre-COVID as well, but anyway, yeah. you just walk in and you grab one and you eat it. And when you can, you get the attention of the waiter and they hand you an amazing glass of like, lightly fizzy white wine made about 10 miles away and you just stand there and talk to your friends and if you're hungry you grab another one and then when you're finished you just tell them what you had and you pay probably about six dollars oh my gosh so that's pinchos i was too young to do that when we went last time but let's go back mom that's so fun yeah, I have vague memory of being in a restaurant and um, you picked and then you told them what you had. I do remember something about that, but we were sitting down. Yeah, it's like kind of an intimidating way to eat as a tourist coming in. Like, Yeah, we, if you don't we weren't know. sure what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, uh, <laughs> it can be intimidating for sure. And, you know, like the waiters here are on a salary. They have no motivation to smile or to be yeah. really nice. So they're, they're not, they're just going to kind of laugh at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but then the waiters, like, it's a real living for them, right? Yeah. yeah. They make a, yeah. Yeah, an honorable wage, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your cookbook you already wrote yeah, and about your new one, too. Sure, yeah. So Basque Country came out in 2018. And, you know, when I moved here in 2010, I had consumed every piece of literature in English about the Basque Country. <laughs> there was not very much. And I was just like, man, like, why is there nothing about Basque people in English? So I knew, like, when I moved here, I was like, man, somebody needs to write a cookbook about all this. It's amazing. And I was like, I want to do it. But then after three, four months, I started to realize, like, at first, it's kind of like a up and down curve. Like, I thought I knew everything after, like, two months. And then after like three or four months, I realized, you know, there's one of my friends from here invited me to his village and he took me and it was like a festival devoted to this bean. And we went to his dining society, which is like a secret food club. And after that day and that experience, I remember thinking like, oh my God, there's so much to this that I don't know. And so that was for me a moment where I was like, okay, this cookbook needs to be written. I want to write it but I am not ready. <laughs> and so I was kind of like shelved the idea and, and just kind of immersed myself. And I was also like writing a blog and trying to write, you know, articles about Basque Country, but I kind of like shelved the cookbook idea for a few years. And when I picked it back up, you know, I, I worked on the proposal and chopped it around and too much to my surprise that actually worked. So I knew when I began to work on writing the book that I wanted it to be really focused on like the Basque cuisine, like traditional Basque cuisine in the tr the Basque tradition, because here, you know, yeah, there's the pinchos and there's also the haute cuisine, like the Michelin stars. But I really wanted to focus on that essence of Basqueness, and I wanted to transmit that in the book. And so the book has, uh, I think, 94 recipes in the end, and they're like the most traditional recipes of Basque country. And I really worked hard to like go into detail about the story behind each recipe, but also accompany uh, that with like the different stories about Basque culture, because food is so intertwined with the culture here that you cannot separate them like they're inseparable and so you really need the context you need to know about the fishermen in the, in the basque tradition that went out to the deep sea and like you need to know 
that context to appreciate why people here eat a hot tuna soup in summertime, <laughs> for example. <laughs> so like really telling all those stories was important to me. And um, it took me about three years to write it. So talking about slow. <laughs> we can- wow. <laughs> Did you find that Basque people received your cookbook? Like, you know, somebody might say, oh, what's an American doing writing about our food? Mm-hmm. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for so just from the beginning when I started working on it, like I had that, you know, in my head. And my whole goal while writing this was like one day when it's translated to Spanish and or Basque and or French, I want someone from here, not just someone from here, I want like a grandma to pick it up and read it and to say like, okay, this is correct. This is perfect. You got it. And, this is it. <laughs> and so that was like a major focus for me. And really like the Basque people have been so closed off from the rest of the world for at first, you know, a long time ago because of their geography and their language. And then more recently because of the political clashes they've had with the Spanish and the French nation. So they've been closed off until really the last like 20, 30 years. And so they are still like very happy to have people recognize them and to talk about them. And so I didn't get like a lot of blowback in that respect. And, you know, I worked really hard to make it something that they could be proud of because I love them so much and I love it here, you know. And so, so yeah. And so now I've been here for so long now that they, at least in San Sebastian, I feel like, you know, I know everybody, everybody knows me. And so, yeah, I've gotten mostly really positive comments about it. And also, like, I actually did have somebody tell me that their grandma, like, took out a pen and paper to, like, find stuff that was wrong with it and that she didn't find anything to write down. So, Oh, wow. Oh, man. So has it been translated yet? That's the biggest. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And do you speak Basque? Mm, I speak a little bit, like a kind of like tourist, like a dumb tourist level. Okay. Um, I can say, like, my name is Marty and I live in San Sebastian would be like, Ni Martinais in Donostian Bicida. So it's like, that's how it sounds. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like not like Spanish at all. No, it's really difficult to learn. The verb conjugation is really difficult. And it's also an agglutinating language. So, like, any modifiers go on the end of the words, which is. Mm-hmm not like any other romance language or English. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. tough. It's tough. But my daughter is fluent and she's really cool. In Basque. Whoa. How do you learn Basque? I mean, they don't teach in school, I guess, or do they? Well, actually, yes. So in America, for anybody who is interested, (laughs) the University of Nevada at Reno does or did, and I think they still do like distance learning classes. So I did one of those when I was in the States. That's how obsessed I was. But it's really, you know, it's really hard to learn Basque. So here, there are lots of Basque like academies because there was this gap and like people who are middle-aged now came to age when Franco the dictator was in power and he didn't let anybody speak it so you everyone had to speak it like you know privately there's kind of like a generational gap so because of that there's tons of Basque academies and also it's like considered a dual language so every official document comes in two languages Spanish and Basque it's the law and that's how it is and there's almost probably 90% of the schools here are all Basque. Wow. Well, you say it's really different from the other Romance languages. Is it more related to Germanic? No, nothing. Totally nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. nothing. It's nothing. It's like nobody knows where it came from. That is mysterious. It's very mysterious. Is it, it's it's not Catalan, is it? Is that a different language? Yeah, Catalan is like in the area of Barcelona. And Catalan is more of like a blend of like French and Spanish. Okay. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It is fascinating. And I didn't realize even how fascinating it was when we were there. I didn't realize how obscure the whole thing was, the culture and the language and everything. We got to go back and get our pinchos. We were in Saint-Jean-de-Luz. In France. uh, The France part of it. And our hosts were introducing us to some of the wonderful Basque foods and traditions. And But we did do a trip to San Sebastian. It was like a day trip, right? I think. Yeah, we took a train and... Went down so there. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. We go, we go to Saint, uh, to the French side a lot, and it's interesting. It's really different. Like the French Basques are quite different because they've had a different experience within their country. So, mm. and the French Basque is in the south of France. It's a lot more rural. It's a lot poorer, to be frank. The northern, the Spanish Basque countries in northern Spain, it's always been very industrial. The Basques are hard workers. There's always been a lot of money, so they really have like 
you know, an important place in the Spanish GDP. They have a lot of voice. Whereas the on the French side, it feels like they've had they're like happy to be a part of France, right? They're like, oh, good. Interesting. Um, when the Spanish side, they're always threatening to kind of you know break off. So that's one of the reasons um, why the sides are so different. And France has been a more unified country in general and throughout history. You know, so so I think that's got to do a lot with kind yeah. of the different vibe. Yeah. But yeah, Saint Jean de Luz is one of ugh, I just love it so much. It's another much smaller than San Sebastian, but it's just like this lovely seaside village, and yes. ugh, I just love it. <laughs> oh, it was so much fun. So let's talk a little bit about slow living and your own experience, like kind of what your typical I know typical day to day is like such a weird phrase, but kind of like how you live your days and if you consider it slow living or what you think about slow living. And especially since you were you're from Alabama, you're from the South. So I think yeah. it's an interesting juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely moving here was a shock, you know. I mean what do you expect, right? Any anytime you leave the States for another country, you're gonna get culture shock. But one of the things that shocked me the most really has to do with this very topic. I remember like the first year I was here, I had like a somewhat stressful paperwork situation. And, you know, I was almost like afraid to even tell my boss at work that I needed like to do these things for paperwork or to, you know, talk to her about how difficult it was. But it's like when you say something, if you're stressed about something here or if you have like a family emergency or whatever, everyone is like, okay, like take a day if you need it, like don't get stressed. You know, stress here is really seen as like the enemy. <laughs> and stress here is, is also given its due as like dangerous for your health. Wow. Yeah, here you can get, and I don't know how easily, it seems pretty easy to get a baja from your job. So like medical leave for stress. My goodness. So, yeah, that encapsulates kind of like the different outlook in just a very cut and dry way. Yes. And then what it does, I mean, I think we're coming around to it in America. I mean, I think, you know, I think more and more people are recognizing the role that mental health plays in physical health. And I think it's really, I think we'll get there or closer to that at some point. But for me, that was one of the things of people just being like, slow down. And another thing that immediately like drew my attention was that people, so if I woke up early, like, you know, 7 a.m. and I was on the street by like 8 a.m., like nobody is out <laughs> at that time. It's like the city is like waking up at 8 a.m. And on the weekends, I'm not even going to tell you guys, like, like not a soul until 10 a.m. Wow. And it's such a dramatic contrast. You know, it's just like, People are just taking things slow. Another thing that I quickly adapted to was like the long lunch. Yeah. So on the weekends here, you're not getting away with less than three hours at lunch. And that's like in a hurry. That's like being in a hurry. That's like in and out on a Saturday. <laughs> Is that in a restaurant or at someone's house or... Well, yeah, people here don't entertain very much in their houses. So it would be like in a restaurant or it could also be at a dining society, which is a very Basque phenomenon. They're like these rooms, you know, locales in, in a building that have been outfitted with a professional kitchen and then just have like a big room with lots of tables, long tables. And you become a member of it. You go, you bring your food. All the pantry staples are there. All the drinks and wines are there. Um, you write down if you use, you know, wine or drinks or olive oil or whatever, you write it down and then you just invite your friends and you cook and you have lunch there. And, you know, that kind of starts at like on a Saturday, you would go do some shopping at the market for the fresh stuff around 11. You definitely stop to have like a vermouth <laughs> at 12 and a little pincho to fortify you because you're about to go cook. And then you go to your gastronomic or your dining society and you're cooking, you know, till two or so. And then you finally start eating around then. And then you're definitely still eating like you're finishing the dessert, maybe at four or 30. But you don't get to leave because then you have to have a digestive drink. So for most people here, that's like a gin and tonic. And so you're probably finishing lunch at like six. So you're like doing 11 to six. <laughs> Our listeners can't see, but... My mom and I's jaws are on the floor the whole that whole time. Oh, this dining society. Oh, how did that get started? Oh, yes. Is that tell me like about a community that. kitchen yeah. or something? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's something that dates back 
about, I think the oldest one is like 1830s. I think that's probably the oldest one. But yeah, it's it's really particular to this corner of the world. And yeah, I don't know exactly why they started, but they definitely were up until very recently, they were a men only thing. And a lot of people joke around that they were like the way, because the Basque society is very matriarchal. Mm. Um, it's like mm. <laughs> women are really strong. A lot of the um, lineage stuff happens or inheritance stuff can happen on the women's side. And so these were the places for the men to go like hide. That <laughs> is so funny. And it's really interesting because I think they actually have played like an important part in legitimizing cuisine. Yeah. For something to be legitimate up until recent history, it had to pass through, it had to be important to men, right? And so, you know, because they were having these spaces dedicated to eating and because they were cooking traditional cuisine in these spaces, it just retained its importance and, you know, its spot like in society. And so they've been um, really instrumental, I think, in Basque cooking tradition. So the men were actually doing the cooking early on. In the, yeah, in the societies, yeah. And um, and there's one or two where women still aren't allowed in the kitchen part, so. Interesting. So you're a member, and then you go, and it's just one person cooks. Is it like one person sacrifices themselves for the days and cooks all day? How does that work? You're sharing the kitchen with other group you know, members of the society. Okay. Usually it's the person who's the member of the society, and maybe he taps two or three of his friends that he's invited yeah. So you can invite, you could be a member of the society and invite like eight people to have lunch with yeah. you. And so everybody would come, but most people are just there to have fun. But maybe you can grab two or three of your friends to help you okay. cook. And, you know, usually it's like people have different specialties. So like Pati will make the salt cod and, you know, Iñaki will make the calamari. And so, yeah, it's definitely a team effort for sure. And yeah, you but you're sharing it and you get to know other people that are cooking next to you. It's really cool. Okay, so you finish lunch at six and then when do we dinner or do we dinner? <laughs> well, you do eat dinner, you do eat dinner, but late as yeah. well. So on a weekend like that, what a lot of people end up doing is having like pinchos for dinner because you kind of never really stop the act of eating. You kind of go have another drink outside, <laughs> hop around. And then by like 10 or 10.30, you're like, well, let's go like have some pinchos. So that's what usually happens. Okay. And one more question about the eating is societies. So are you intermingling with the other parties there? Are you sharing food with them? Is it Does it become one big party or is it little separate groups? Yeah, not really. Not so much like sharing food with them. I mean, usually in, in my experience, like, I don't know, about half the time I'll end up chatting maybe with other people that are at other tables, but it's usually more of just like a nod and a wave or like, you know, because everybody's kind of doing their own little plan. So, so yeah. It kind of sounds like a restaurant that, yeah, yeah. like you're just, you're cooking also, <laughs> like you show up. You bring your own food. Yeah, B-Y-O-F restaurant. <laughs> what an amazing concept. It's really Let's cool. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, just like the pinchos, it's like could only happen in this form in the Basque Country because mm -hmm. it's honor system. They go in, it's this huge pantry full of alcohol, but yet at the end of the month, all the accounts match up. Because people take it very seriously, just like the pinchos. Are they hard to get into? Oh, we have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> We're writing our business plan. <laughs> so how is it funded? The members pay a monthly fee. I get it. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. is it hard to get into? Yeah, it, it can be. So the center, the nexus of this whole concept is the old town of San Sebastian. And so the wait lists for the ones that are in the old town, are there are wait lists. And you usually have to be like the son of somebody or, you know, really recommended by somebody to get in. But then if you go to like the other neighborhoods or if you're in a village, I think it's a lot easier and you can mm -hmm. just be like, okay, I want to be a member and they'll let you in and, and you have to, you know, attend meetings and you have to follow the rules. So are you in one? No, I have not taken that plunge because I have so many friends oh, that are in them I and I haven't. Taken but that. I'm sure you get, you get plenty of invites and you get, probably get to cook some too, huh? Yeah, yeah. When I first moved here, you know, I was, I guess I was like 25 or 26. And so at that point, I remember talking with some of my friends as I made good friends here and they're like, okay, who's going to join the society? Because it's yeah. like, you have to have one. Yeah. 
What a fantastic way to learn how to cook the dishes, like be in the kitchen with those people. And I mean, it was just really so inspiring to see like a 26, 27 year old guy take like this huge aluminum pan and make, you know, cod cheeks in emulsified olive oil. You know, it's just they care so much and they're so skilled. So tell us about your day-to-day life a little bit. I mean, you're a writer and a traveler, and I know you take a lot of trips, and how do you handle that with the kids and all that? So I live like in the middle you know, of a city. San Sebastian is not that big. I'm looking out at it right now. It's got a beautiful river kind of flowing right through the middle of it. And we have three different beaches and are surrounded kind of by two different mountains. And then there's like a mountain right in the middle of the city. And so that said, it's a pretty compact city. So I do have a job. I work in marketing, but I also write on the side. So I do have kind of a structured weekday, but it's a lot different, I feel like, than it would look if I was in the States because I'm waking up, getting you know my daughters ready. The older one walks off to school, which is right on the beach. The younger one I take to her school. And when I first moved here, I just remember thinking of the movie Beauty and the Beast because like we would walk down the street to school and it'd be like, bonjour, bonjour. Like saying hi to like, the coffee guy, hi to the computer guy, hi to the fish maker. That's, that's like how the morning is. We like walk down the street and we're like, hola, hola, hola. You and I love that. I just like, I don't know, for me, that's that kind of idea of having all these kind of acquaintances and people you know and just say hi to all day long. I don't know why, but it just makes me feel good. It just I feel like that's missing or it was missing for me in the States. So that's kind of like the the cool part of living in this kind of pedestrian area. And yeah, and then my day, you know, work day, but then people, the long lunch thing is usually on the weekends. So I feel like kind of most people take a quicker lunch break during the weeks. Although if you do have lunch out, there's it's a different way of eating. You get a first plate, a second plate, a dessert, and a coffee. It's still very civilized. The idea of running in and out for a salad or taking a sandwich to eat at your desk. Like I'm the only person doing that in San Sebastian. Yeah. <laughs> but I still have that American part of me that's like, okay, I need to get my work done. Okay, you know, if I eat too much at lunch, I get sleepy, you know? But yeah. People here just power through it. Coffee, you know, wine, then coffee, then back to work. Uh, <laughs> so so that would be so hard. Wine at lunch. <laughs> anyway, oh, I would be done. Do Love it. Yeah. I know. I remember in France when I was doing that teaching thing, the teachers at school in the middle of the day would sit, we'd all have lunch together and we'd crack a bottle of wine. I don't know whether it's, is it like civilized or is it alcoholic? I don't know. <laughs> but I love it. So funny. Yeah, it's just a totally different kind of viewpoint of what alcohol is and the part plays yeah. in society. Yeah, absolutely. It literally helps your food taste better and it helps your food digest. And yeah. So now that you know, you grew up in America, now you've been living in Europe, Spain for a while. It's not like you've just been there a year or two or whatever. So, and there are so many people that may be listening to this and say, Oh, I love, I love hearing about that lifestyle, but it's so unattainable here. We can't do that. I can't pick up and move to Europe, and life is different here. What can you tell people about just bringing a little bit of that slow living into our culture here? And because it is, it is, as, as you say, is recognized there, it's healthier. It's makes you happy. It, you have association with people. Yeah. And so yeah. what can you say about that, if anything? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as far as like tangible stuff, I remember back when I was obsessed with Spain, but living in Birmingham, you know, I would walk places, even when there wasn't a sidewalk, I would walk, you know, to the grocery store. And it was so close. I remember our grocery store was like seven minutes walking, basically a few blocks away, but there was no sidewalk. And so I would walk along the side of the road. And sometimes people would offer me a ride. And then I'd walk back with my groceries. And for me, that was just kind of a way to protest, like being forced to drive everywhere. But on a nicer note, you know, like on Saturdays or something, you know, we would maybe go park our car downtown and just spend the day. And I would even do funny stuff. So we would like go to the market and then walk to other places. Cause of course in a downtown setting, that's more feasible. And I remember I would like deliberately order small appetizers and like a glass of wine at one place and then go to another place. I would just try to kind of recreate this <laughs> appreciation for extending the eating time. And I feel like that's like one huge thing. I mean, of course, everything I do and think about has to do with food. So that's one of the things I guess I would focus on just taking that moment. If you're, if somebody has cooked for you or you're in a restaurant, taking the time to like think about what you're eating and look at it and appreciate it before you just take it all down. And if you're cooking at home, 
like really making that act of cooking, you know, something fun. And one of the shocking, like, or the changes of mindset that I went through was like, oh, but I don't have time for that. And I got here and I was like, what? Why don't I have time for that? What all do I actually have to do? And you start to kind of examine your day and it's like, well, I could just like not go to Target and then I could, you know, have my glass of wine and cook this in like a really relaxing way and give it the time and attention it deserves and relax myself. Or I can try to make a run to the mall and go and quick and grab a coffee. And and another thing here that has changed a lot for me and is another thing that you could maybe experiment with in the States is like, take your coffee for there. Don't walk around and drink it. Stop. Give yourself time to like stop Mm -hmm. and sit and rest and think or have a talk with your friends or just stare into space. I mean, sometimes when I talk about this kind of stuff, I feel like not hippie, but like annoying, you know, it's like, of course, we all know we're not supposed to look so much at our phones. And we all know that like our lifestyle is bad for us. But much like with dieting or eating, it's about like seeking enjoyment from the act rather than thinking about it as like a restriction, you know, that the Mm -hmm. more attention you pay to whether it's food or whether it's what you're doing, the more you can kind of enjoy it rather than being on a constant quest to like optimize your life. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, so well said. I love that. A couple of things. It's like coffee is, you know, when you have coffee, it's either like, you know, do you have coffee like a noun? Like you, you, you get your coffee and you take it somewhere and you're, and you're doing what you're doing. But also having coffee can mean sitting and visiting with somebody and taking the time. I love that. I, and that's, it's, isn't that the most American thing, running around with your go coffee? It totally is. It's like for people in Europe, if there was like an American Barbie, that would be the Barbie with a to-go cup of coffee. Like that's what the whole thing So the other thing I was going to do was tell a story and I've told it on here before, but my big aha moment about slow food was I was visiting a friend in Italy and well, an American friend and we were traveling together and we were invited to this Italian person's house for lunch. And just as you described, the lunch started at, you know, 1230 and we're sitting there literally until like 530, six o'clock and the only reason we had to go was because we had dinner reservations. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> During that lunch, there had been a bowl of figs on the table and they ran out. And the host said, Oh, let me go get more figs. And did he go to the kitchen refrigerator? No. He went outside <laughs> to the tree and, <laughs> and he picked. The figs off the tree and brought him back to the table. And that just blew me away. That really was a pivotal moment for me. I thought, this is a way of life. Mm-hmm. Food straight from the tree, all this time, tons of wine, and then going straight to dinner. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's like, it's good for you. I mean, living like, I'm convinced that like, that is a big part. Because, you know, there's all these studies about the Mediterranean diet and Sardinia and how they live till 100 but we're never going to be able to extract that to an pill essence, you know, yeah. like, no, it's the actual act of doing that. And it's the act of talking to people and socializing while you're doing it. That's the health benefit. It's not the vitamin orange right. juice that you're drinking. It really is. the, um, <laughs> And there's a lot more like science about that too. It's the parasympathetic nervous system mode that you're in. When you sit down to eat, if you're stressed while you're eating, it's bad mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, I've, I've read about that. And I read an article about how, you know, if you're thinking about the food that you're eating as like weight causing or like, yeah. you know, weight gain, if you're thinking like then your body's going to like yeah. digest in a different way. I've heard that. I've read this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What does the good dirt mean to you? I love that phrase because I feel like um, being a food person, it's like super applicable. I mean, for me, good dirt would just means like a like the foundation upon which everything, you know, in your life is built upon and which everything in your life comes from. And just like with food, like the terroir of the wine or of even the food or the vegetables or the fish or whatever, you know, that has to be good, has to be healthy, has to be cared for, you know, and that idea of really tending to the basics in your life before you're trying to optimize and reap Mm. and you know like harvest you know really tending to the basics in your life and putting emphasis and time into what's important I think that whole kind of just idea is just so important yeah my brain just immediately went to um what you're just saying was like the time that we spend with our food and sourcing our food and thinking about our food 
I think we're always, as a culture, at least in American culture, we're always looking for ways to make that easier and more convenient. And it's like, what matters more than food? There's nothing more important than food. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Exactly. Like when, <laughs> what your mom was saying about the Italian aha moment for her. And that, like the same kind of, I had that same, the same kind of experiences. And at first I, I was like, man, I can't be like having these yeah. long lunches on the weekend. I don't have any time. And I was like, well, what am I going to really do on the weekend anyway? Like, you know, like what, what else did I have to do? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, that realization and the realization that the whole convenience thing that is the, like you said, the basis for the American way of eating is like that whole thing is built on a fact mm-hmm. that's not even true. Yeah. We don't have to make up for all that lost time. It's not lost. Isn't it something to think that we've been kind of brainwashed that way? We totally have. That we don't have the time. And which is a fundamental part of what we talk about at Lady Farmer. We have as much time as they did 100 years ago. And our grandparents that sat around on the porch and did supposedly nothing. We have the same amount of time. It's just, it's really what we tell ourselves. We just have a lot of other people wanting our time because we make the money. So yeah, yeah. True, Emma. I have one more question for Marty. So I I imagine you have a lot of farmer's markets and that's where you get your food. You go straight to the fish person or the farmer's market. Is there a farmer's market in the square or where do you get your food? Yeah, definitely. I have actually like funny story after I talk about this. (laughs) I just thought of. So here in San Sebastian, there's a couple markets and what that means, they they, they have kind of permanent places. So there's one in the old part that um, is very famous, La Brecha. And then there's San Martin, which is like in the center and is looks newer, but it has lots of roots in the city's history as well. And um, basically there's just tons of stalls. There's like a fish section, there's the butchers, butcher section, and there's, you know, the green grocers uh, are the farmers actually. They drive in and they're beat up trucks in the morning and they drive out at, at midday and they're selling, you know, selling their stuff every day. And it's as simple as just walking up and, you know, buying the stuff, which I always laugh too, because it's like always the same stuff, you know, changing with the days, but like, there's never even like a purple carrot. There's never anything out of the ordinary. It's always like leeks, onions, potatoes, carrots, squash. It's very much always the same thing, which can be, as an expat here, it can be slightly annoying sometimes, but then, you know, I love it in reality. And that actually makes me think, because one summer we went out to live in the countryside. We spent almost three months in a small village called a town. Um, It's really beautiful. It's in some Basque, like jokey legend, um, says that it's the site of Garden of Eden, and that when oh. an apple fell, when the apple fell, it stayed in the ground and it fermented and it became Basque cider. <laughs> like <laughs> it's just because it's because it is paradise, especially in the summer, like on a sunny day, it's just gorgeous. And so we lived on this uh, village, and we got into the habit of being very Basque because they only had a small store, and at the store, people from the village would bring extras from the garden that would then be sold at that little store. And so it was all the same stuff all the time. So we got into the habit of having this Basque simple salad, which is nothing, but you can't really find it anywhere else. It's like loose leaf green lettuce, uh, thinly sliced like spring onion, and then apple cider vinegar and olive oil and salt. And we had that every day. And so I came back to San Sebastian in September and I went to like the best farmer's market. I got the same ingredients and I made the salad and it didn't taste as good. And it didn't taste the same. (laughs) Whoa. Oh my gosh, like that is so crazy because it's still good. It's still really good because I remember when I came from America to here and all all the food I made tasted better. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that I could distinguish the taste from, you know, this tiny village. The greens and the onion. It was crazy. I was like, man, it really does matter. And also another thing about the Basque people that's really interesting is that because their cuisine is so simple and because they eat the same thing all the time, they have really sensitive palates and they're really good at like mm. telling when a fish is, you know, fresh and they're just really, really good at tasting the stuff that they are trained to taste. Oh, that's amazing. So interesting. You talked about some cultured things. Cured. Is there any fermented stuff in the Basque tradition besides the cider and everything, but vegetables or anything? Yeah, no, no, really. Besides besides the cider, no. It's not, that's not a hallmark at all of, okay. of, that's not like a flavor note, really, no. And do they have many grains? Like, do they make bread or anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, bread making is, you know, big here. 
and has been since they brought wheat and propagated it, you know, a few hundred years ago. The original diet of the Basque, you know, 400, 500, 600 years ago, would be mostly like millet, apples, and sheep's products. You know, sheep are huge here. So they're making sheep cheese, sheep milk, yogurt, sheep, sausage, <laughs> like everything is made of sheep. But they make, they do grow like a lot of corn, but they don't, they use it for flour or to feed animals. They don't actually have the practice of eating like corn on the cob like we do, which is pretty interesting as well. And when you say cured, that means like, would that be with like salt? Yeah, generally they do some vinegar cured stuff, like especially olives and pickles and stuff. But when it's cured, when it's seafood, it's usually salt cured. They have anchovies that are also cured in vinegar. They're white and they're delicious. But yeah, it's like a salt cure process generally with seafood. Um, well, is there anything else that you want to touch on or that you want the listeners to understand about the work that you're doing? I always talk about um, when I'm making these recipes and one of the things I learned when I did the first cookbook to appreciate. Because like, if you look at a Basque recipe in my cookbook, so many of them don't have that many ingredients. You know, they're not in and of themselves that difficult. But like there's this secret ingredient, I feel like, in almost every Basque dish, which is just thyme. For example, a squid in its ink is just a puree of vegetables tinted with squid ink and served with the actual calamari. But what makes it so good is that these vegetables, the onion and the pepper, they're given like 40, 50, 60 minutes to caramelize. And you just get like a depth of flavor that's so good. And I see that across the board when I look at traditional Basque cuisine is just like, Time is like an essential ingredient. And there's even a Basque saying that is poliki poliki, which means like little by little. And it's used in cooking. It's used in life. Uh, it's used if you're stressed, you know, it's like just little by little, like take it easy. And it's definitely used in the kitchen as well. And I just feel like that's a really good phrase for you guys to know. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a wonderful like life philosophy. Poliki poliki. Oh, that's great. This has been the most fun conversation. I'm seeing Emma like booking a flight. I know. I'm like, like I'm coming. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for reaching out. I'm so glad that you did. Yeah. If you are tempted to come over, then you have to let me know and I will help you. We will. Have a good day. See ya. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community, and the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the good dirt. Goodbye. Goodbye.